God, we thank you for a time to gather and study your word and be encouraged by what you have to say to us in the scriptures. We thank you that you are a God who chose to reveal yourself, that we are not left guessing about who you are or what pleases you. And I thank you that part of that revelation was sending your son in flesh that he might live among us and teach us and ultimately go to the cross and die for our redemption. Um, and Lord, as, as we're going to talk about in uh, church this morning, even more than our redemption, that Christ died to save us from our sins, not just the guilt of sin, but even the power and the effect of sin. And uh, we give you praise for that. I pray that as we look at Mark this morning, you would open our eyes and encourage us from the discussion and uh, that you would lead us and guide us. And I pray this in Christ's name, that he might be richly glorified through our time together. Amen. Amen. Hi, guys. Come on in. Is there somebody holding the door open or did it get stuck? Yes, there's somebody holding it. Okay. All right. Lucas holding it. Okay, where are we at? We are in Mark, and we are in chapter... Uh, 5.36. Yeah, I was going to pick up at 5.35. So we'll reread that section, 35 through the end there. And uh, I'll probably just read it so that the recording will catch it nice and loud for us. So again, we're in Mark chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 35. And this is uh, in the middle of a scene, but that's okay. So it says, while he was still speaking, and that's Jesus, while Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. The ruler is the ruler of the synagogue. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. I really should do a word search on immediately just to see how many times Mark uses that in his gospel. It's like, and then I know some different translations translate it differently, but it's all over the place. All right. So uh, we know, I'll just give you just a refresher of the scene here. Jesus is uh, stopped by this synagogue ruler and he's asked to come and heal the synagogue ruler's daughter. Jairus is the synagogue ruler's name. And uh, Jesus decides to go with him and along the way, there's lots of crowds. They're kind of accosted by all these people and one woman in particular touches Jesus or at least touches the hem of his garment and she's healed from her bleeding and um, and Jesus is amazed by her faith and then they continue on to Jairus's house and here's kind of what happens at Jairus's house so Peter James and John are given a special opportunity here um, if you read the Gospels it'll become a, you'll become aware pretty quickly that 
Peter in particular, I think, was, was pretty close to Jesus. Um, so is John. And you also have James as well. These three kind of form Jesus' inner circle. So Jesus has the 12 apostles, and then he's got these kind of three men that make up his inner circle. Um, and I, I'm not exactly sure why he chose these three. Does anybody want to take a... I guess it would just be a speculative guess, unless you got a verse that comes to mind. I, I don't know. I think maybe Peter is, is maybe an obvious choice because he seems to be really passionate and very committed to Jesus and the cause. Um, and he, Jesus says, is, is, is sort of the, the kind of initial founder of the, the church once Jesus goes. I mean, it's Peter who stands up at Pentecost and gives this sermon that causes many people to give their lives to Christ. Um, but it's just kind of interesting that Jesus has this inner circle. And um, he, he brings these guys into some, some other uh, spectacular moments. So in Mark chapter 9, which we'll get to in a bit, these are the guys who follow him up on the mountain where he has his transfiguration and they see Jesus in all of his glory. Um, there's a scene in Mark chapter 13, so a little bit later, as well, where Jesus is teaching about the end of the age, where I, th I think he's kind of talking about the destruction of the temple. I mean, it's it's we'll, we'll have to deal with the complexity there when we get to it, but at least in part, he's talking about the end of the age, meaning the fall of Jerusalem, because he references that this will happen before many of these people in his presence pass away. But in that scene, you have Peter, James, and John. You also have Andrew there, but it's a private conversation. And then in the scene in Gethsemane, um, Jesus takes all of his apostles to the garden to pray, and then he takes Peter, James, and John with him a little further along. So I, I, I don't know that I necessarily know what the meaning of that is, but it's interesting that Mark, Mark in particular, points this out. It shows up again in Mark 9 and then Mark 13 in two different places. Again, anybody want to offer what, what they think might be a reason for that? I think, you know, he had a continued big crowd with him all the time. You know that in Acts, he had 120 people following right. him all the time. From that 120, there was 12. And then from that 12, he had three. So I think it's something for us to look at. Is how do we do church? Yeah. And there's a point there that, that said, you look at how oh, you're doing the elders people said you've got a, a big crowd, and then from there you got the, the small crowd, and from there you got the inner circle. It's not a case of priority or a case of favoritism. It's a case of getting your head together and praying together and working together. So yeah. I think, I think and then, then you look at it, I think also said, the, the church was not built so much on these, but they, this is part of the leadership of the church and the early church. Peter, John, and then James, of course, James, the brother of Jesus, eventually came when he when he believed after Jesus died, and then uh, uh, so and then so yeah, these people were the the, the bedrock of the of the early church. So, yeah. So, yeah, that's good. You, uh, you point out a couple of things there. I think the bigger the group, the more difficult the intimacy. Right, you can be more intimate with a group of four men than you can be with a group of 120 or even 12 or 13. Um, so that's probably a piece of it. And then, yeah, Ephesians 4 talking about um, God giving the apostles, the prophets, the teachers, and shepherds to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. I think Jesus was giving these guys some particular training so that they could go on to serve the church to raise up other disciples, right? Um, 
So I, I think those are probably good answers. I think Peter also, because Peter, you know, you know, Peter, Peter could, could, could run with two sandals in, in his mouth at the same time. But Peter, uh, when he, at the Transfiguration, when he said who Jesus was, immediately says, get behind me, uh, Satan. But when he denied Jesus, and then Jesus pulls him aside in John 21, and yeah. restores him. So there's that relationship. Yeah. And then there's restoration yeah that's also beautiful i think they might be they might be the most outwardly zealous you know like action guys they were the guys that were right there wanting you know yeah you know that might just be that they were you know. right certainly you they um they show up more in the text you remember their names more than you remember like you know bartholomew uh because they're drawn out in the text a little bit more um Nice, good stuff. Okay, so when Jesus walks in the room, or, or at least when he gets to the house, you know, there's all these people <clears throat> weeping and wailing loudly. Um, I think I've heard before that part of Jewish culture at this point is you would actually like pay for mourners to come and and uh, express their grief over the loss of a family member. Um, I guess I, I don't know. I've not seen the source on that. I've just heard people mention that. But certainly in different cultures, people express grief in different ways. When I was serving as a police chaplain, I mean, there were some scenes where people just sat stone cold silent and stared. There were other scenes where people were, you know, almost serving me like I was a guest in their house and that was how they were processing their grief. There were other people that screamed and wailed and like, we had to go apologize to the neighbors and explain what was going on, you know? So people deal with this in different ways. I do think that, um, I do think it's kind of interesting that they shift very quickly from weeping and wailing to mocking and laughing as soon as Jesus says, the girl's not dead. Um, I, maybe we could just spend a moment talking about like stepping into grief with people, right? Scripture says, weep with those who weep mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice. So, you know, if you have to come alongside of somebody who um, is dealing with grief, I think probably the best example that we get in scripture is uh, the friends of Job, actually, who just sort of sit with their brother in his loss quietly and, and are very patient to open their mouths. Um, you know, I think well-meaning people sometimes say really foolish things if you've not experienced grief yourself. Um, but I also think that it's important to encourage people with God's word. Um, <clears throat> I, I've been thinking about this a bit because, and maybe you've heard me tell this story before, but the guy who initially hired me in, into ministry when I was 19 has walked so far away from Jesus. It's, it's really, really sad. But I remember him at one point, you know, as I've reflected back on like that relationship and, and initially he was going to kind of like mentor me to like be a pastor, which I'm thankful he left six months later. <laughs> But at one point he said to me, you know, when people are in grief, pastors offer all these biblical cliches, you know, uh, consider it all joy when you face trials of many kinds, because, you know, the testing of your faith develops perseverance. James chapter one, Romans 8, 28. Um, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And there was a while I was like, yeah, yeah, maybe we shouldn't just offer these cliches to people. But the more I thought about them, like, what else is there to say? Right? Like what we need to do is point people in their grief, in their suffering, in their trials to the rock that is Jesus Christ, to the truth of God's word. Right? Those are not cliches. 
those are the kinds of things that when the tempest is going crazy around you and it feels like the ship is sinking, you fix your eyes on Jesus Christ and he brings kind of the calm waters that Peter could stand on, right? Does that kind of make sense? I'm, I'm mixing all kinds of metaphors here, so forgive me for that. Um, but if you think that pointing somebody to Jesus in the midst of their difficulty, pointing somebody to scripture in the midst of their hardship is offering them meaningless cliches, then the problem is with you, not with scripture. Does that make sense? All right. I, I don't, let me put it this way. If you are in my life at a point when I go through a, a time of trial and difficulty, I would love nothing more than for you to say, Grady, remember what God's word says. That's probably the most encouraging thing that you can do for me. Okay, so then Jesus says, why are, verse 39, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Well, is Jesus lying? They think the girl is dead. Like, either the girl is dead or she's not dead. The people think she is. Jesus says she's not. This seems to be a miracle of him raising her from the dead. Maybe he doesn't do that. Maybe he just heals her and she's close to death. Well, he says he's not dead, so I'm going to go with that. You're going to go with that. But we also have references where some, some saints have fallen asleep. You know, we know that, that it speaks of them already dying later in the scripture, right? So we know that, that you know, sleep can be associated with that. So it could be either or. Maybe, you know. So he, you're saying... The, the, the issue, though, with what, that, with what you're saying there is he says she's not dead but sleeping. If he said she is sleeping, that might be different. Like, right. we can maybe interpret that metaphorically like the Bible sometimes does. But right. he specifically says she's not dead. I know I referenced that she might have been in a coma last week when we were talking. You know, there's people yeah. that speculate these things where she assumed she looked to be dead. Right. But he, he, you know, he just knew better. I was yeah. throwing that out there. But, but there were people, uh, letters with dead, right? Yes, okay. Lazarus was dead. For Lazarus sure. was dead. So he's totally dead. <laughs> he's yeah, so Lazarus was was dead, and there was no bones about that. So he's 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 being a little specific here. Yeah. Let me um, submit to you this idea, and then you can decide whether I'm wrong or or maybe not. I I think it's quite possible that Jesus, um, I mean, Jesus is not lying. Obviously, but I think that it's quite possible that um, she is dead and Jesus is saying that she's sleeping. And here's why. Because from the perspective of man, she could be dead. And yet from the perspective of God, what's the difference between sleep and death, really? Right? I'm, I'm not trying to like play hard and fast with the text here. I'm just saying I, I think Jesus could say she's sleeping and she could be dead in the sense that Neither is, neither is beyond God's power to bring back to consciousness. Does that make sense? Well, what is it to be dead? I mean, as far as spirit, spiritually dead, I mean, she's spiritually dead. <clears throat> yeah, and maybe that, that, that could also be another interpretation is like, hey guys, what you see is like death of the flesh, but actually this is, this is a girl who does indeed have faith. She's one of my children. She's not dead, right? She's sleeping in the sense that she will awake again into the, the kingdom of everlasting life. Ephesians 5.14 kind of alludes to that. Uh, get up, sleeper, and arise from the dead. Yeah. That's good. Thank you for looking that up. 
I, I don't know. Either way, whatever he does here is mind-blowing in the people who are watching, right? Who are willing to see it. Um, and uh, the reason is because Jesus says she's only sleeping, but they're convinced she's dead, right? As far as they perceive, this girl has been raised from death to life. Um, so even if it is some kind of coma and she's in some sleep and he restores her, either way, this is an incredible display of power. He commands and she gets up. She, hear, she hears it. Yeah, she hears it and she wakes. But guess who else hears it? Lazarus in the tomb, right? Like been dead three days and even death and physical decay really. Four days. Was it four days? Four days. Okay. Even death and physical decay was not sufficient to keep him from staying in the tomb. Or coming out of the tomb, I should say. So, Another, uh, first about sleeping, being dead, but now Christ, the first Corinthians 15, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Okay, yeah. And I think, doesn't, doesn't one of the letters in the Revelation mention that similar idea as well? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm conflating it with the Ephesians passage, but um, I think it says something along, along the lines of awake. Now that I said it, I'll just look real quick. Let's see. I don't This is not a red letter version, so it might take me a while to find the... Um, he says, wake up and, and put, put in order. But I'm, I'm probably not going to be able to find it. Um... That's okay. Rather than spend a bunch of time looking, the verses that you brought up are sufficient. <clears throat> That's cool. So when Jesus says this, how do the people respond? Verse, what's that? They mock. Yeah, verse 40. They laugh at him. Um, man, doesn't the world just continue to mock us, mock the people of Jesus, mock the claims that we make? When we say something like, we think a God created the universe and it didn't just pop into existence from subatomic particles colliding in a vast void of nothingness. And they laugh at us, right? God? And yet, which of those claims is more absurd, honestly? Um, we could go into more of that, but we'll, we'll move on. The, the point is, the world looks at the claims of Jesus and just laughs. And of course they would. Because from outside of the kingdom of God, you cannot perceive the realities of the kingdom of God. Right? I mean, scripture uses words like blind, dead. Uh, even though they have ears, they cannot hear. Maybe an illustration of this is like if I were to put in front of you a street level photo of New York City. Anybody ever been in New York City? Okay, a couple of you guys. It's, it's an incredible place. Like it just... Like, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. I thought Chicago was a big city. When I finally went to New York, it just went on and on and on forever, right? But if I were to put in front of you a big picture of just street-level New York City, would you be able to comprehend New York City from that picture? Not at all, right? Like, you might see a bagel shop or, like, Saks Fifth Avenue. I don't know, some stores. 500 cabs. 
<laughs> yeah, right. You might see some some cabs in the picture, some people walking the street, but like that view of New York City versus standing in like Times Square or standing in Manhattan, there's no comparison at all, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, we went through uh, Hurricane Hugo years ago, and um, people wanted to know what it looked like, so I go outside and take a picture of a tree on the ground. That's all they saw. Right. But what you saw was, I mean, from above, it was trees down everywhere, one tree down on the ground. Yeah, that's another maybe, great example. Maybe, maybe think of that. Or even you think about like a picture from space of that hurricane, and you're like, oh, that's cool, versus standing there in 80 mile an hour winds watching your neighborhood blow away, yeah, right? One, yeah, one tree on the ground, though, is not big. Right, right. And so they're probably, you know, these days if you texted it out, they'd be like, oh, what's the big deal? A tree yeah. fell down. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, no, I'm about to watch my house blow away. Um, so the, the point is, you cannot comprehend the kingdom of God from outside of the kingdom of God. I mean, it's difficult to comprehend the kingdom of God from inside the kingdom of God at this point, right? Because even what we have is, is it's a bigger, fuller picture. It's a little more three-dimensional. It's a little bit more present in our lives. But it's not even still the totality of the kingdom of God. But at least we have the understanding of how wretched... And I'm perfect we are and how like a righteous God yeah. save us from our unrighteousness. And before that, before Christ, we didn't know that. Yes. And that, that's a huge change, right? That we go from being a God hater. There are some people that don't like it when I use that phrase, but that that's what the Bible says. Like we're haters of God. Paul mentions that in Romans. Um before we come to faith in Christ, and then afterward we become God lovers, right? And we give him thanks and praise for his grace and the redemption that we've received through him. So yes, amen. Great, great. Do you think as far as being a God hater, do you think that's the default? Yes. Yeah, I, I kind of do too. Now, now, do do people always go about with that kind of like aggression? Yeah, you know, verbally? Fit? Uh-huh. No, right? I mean, you have like the Satanists who want to bring like Satanism into the schools to just make Christians angry, that kind of thing. Like, no, not everybody's to that level. But to be born with a sin nature is to be born a God hater, right? There are more moral and less moral people, but that doesn't change that fundamental relationship to God, right? That I wouldn't pursue this God or go looking for him. Uh, based on my nature. At, at very minimum, the, the Bible uses the word hate as often um, as a juxtaposition between what you love the most. So, um, you know, we must love God and, and hate our mothers, brothers, and sisters. It doesn't mean we don't love them. Right. But it means they don't have first place. And everybody that's not a Christian doesn't have God in first place. And therefore, at minimum, they hate him in that respect. But yeah, and, and that's really what I'm getting at is, again, not that everybody is like this, this incredibly aggressive atheist but just that if God is not the treasure of your heart, then you're a God-hater. Um, and uh, again, I'll, I'll just give you a place where this shows up in Scripture. Uh, it's in Romans chapter 1, verse uh, 30. Paul gives this list of just the unrighteousness of man. Verse 29, they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God. So left to our own devices, that's what we tend to do. Yes. Yes. 
So they mock Jesus. And uh, do you think that if Jesus hadn't said, let's put the scene this way. Jesus says, guys, she's dead, but I'm going to raise her from the dead. Would they have done anything differently? Right? They still would have laughed at him. And uh, there's this interesting scene in Luke 16 that you are probably aware of with the, um, the, I mean, the rich man and Lazarus. And at the end of that, the rich man says to Abraham, well, let me go back to my brothers and, uh, and, and tell them about what's in store for them if they continue down this path. You know, maybe if somebody were to rise from the dead, if I were to show up after being in the grave, that would really change the trajectory of their lives. Does anybody know what Abraham says in response to that? So he does say that, you know, if they if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe you either. But he says, but even if somebody were to rise from the dead, they still will not believe it. Right, which is interesting too, because when Jesus lays, raises Lazarus from the dead, the text says, "And many who were present believed." Isn't it spectacular that it doesn't say all? Right. So the fact of the matter is, even if Jesus had walked in the room and been like, "Guys, she's definitely dead. No heartbeat," but I'm going to raise her from the dead, they still would have been like, mocking, laughing. You're an idiot. What are you talking about? And even even if he had said that, and then he raises her, what would they have gone and said happened? Right? There was a sick girl and he came in and he, you know, he, he, he healed her. But they, they, I mean, we just cannot believe in the resurrection. Right? Not, not naturally. And it's kind of understandable. Like, do you understand that if a man really rose from the dead, that changes everything? That changes everything. Even if I would like to think that if I wasn't a believer and somebody said to me, I know a guy who rose from the dead, that I would be like, whoa, hold on. I need to find out if this is true. Because if this is true, everything is changed. Right? You might be a liar, but if it's true, nothing has ever happened that is as consequential as that. Can you please explain that to me? What does that mean? It's amazing that people can be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. those Christians, they believe Jesus rose from the dead. All right, whatever. But what's ironic is you brought up a picture of New York. I've never been in New York, but I believe New York exists because I've, I've taken on good evidence writing things. And what yeah. you're pointing out is the same. It's evidence that yeah. points to the resurrection. And for us to not believe, for anybody not to believe, they're not giving the same credence to historical evidence that they yeah. do in a lot of things in their life, which is yeah. interesting. I, I've probably told this story before too, but I love it because I, I just think it's so clever. So my dad is a, was a college professor before he retired last year, and he had a student of his who was like, hey, can I bring a friend of mine into your class? And my dad was like, yeah, totally. So this friend was studying, I, I don't know, it might have even been Harvard or Yale or something like that. Some, some Ivy League school in the Northeast came and sat in on my dad's class, and, and my dad was teaching a class on Christian education or something like that. And she comes up afterward and she goes, that was a really interesting lecture. You know, thank you for letting me come and sit in on the class. I'm studying something like molecular biology. And, you know, so, so I find what you're saying interesting. But my worldview is I only believe things that can be proven and shown empirically in a laboratory. My dad was like, that's an interesting worldview. Can you show me empirically in a laboratory why you believe that? She was like, wait, what? 
Her whole worldview was based on empirical evidence, but she couldn't empirically prove that her worldview should be based on empirical evidence. Right? So it's the same kind of thing. Like, here are these people who disbelieve these kinds of things because they believe only in the material world, but they can't explain why they should only believe in the material world. Okay, so, uh, and again, we see Jesus here. We already talked about this, but touching unclean things. And I guess I'm assuming that the, the woman, the girl actually is dead. Um, I guess maybe if she was sick. I didn't look very closely at the Levitical law there, whether like illness also creates uncleanness. But if she's dead, then Jesus touching her makes him unclean. Um, and yet even the ultimate unclean thing, death, is cleansed by Jesus. So Jesus cannot become ritually unclean. Praise God for that. And those of us who are ritually unclean, when we come to this man and we say, make me clean, his cleanness is given to us. When, when the leper came, yeah. he says, if you're willing, yeah. and he did, and he went and he touched the leper. I know. Radical laws on that one. Yep. Beautiful, right? Jesus should have been unclean as absolutely. a result, but absolutely. it's not the way it works. And what we talked about last week, nowhere else is cleanness imparted to someone else. I yep. mean, in no other situation do you have cleanness imparted to what is not clean. Yep. Usually the reverse. Yep. Yep. Okay, so Jesus says Talitha Kumi, which is uh, Aramaic. Um, so the, the Bible has three different, the, the Bible in its original languages has three different languages in it. Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Not King James. King James is not one of the Bi earliest Bible translations. Bible, I'm kidding. I'm, I shouldn't go there. Sorry. The King James Version is a great translation. Um, but the Bible in its original languages was written in predominantly Hebrew in the Old Testament. Like Daniel is Aramaic. Uh, so Aramaic also, and then Greek. Um, do you guys want some details on the Aramaic language? Do you care? No, not I, I, the first thing I saw was somebody saying no, thank you. So okay. What do you mean by details? Like, are, do you have any interest in what aspects of the Bible are in Aramaic and where it comes from, its history, anything like that? A little bit. <laughs> then give me like maybe ninety seconds, and I'll cover some of this. Uh, one, of the th one of the things I want to point out that I think this is important is at one point somebody came to me at Maricopa Springs and they said, I've got this new Bible translation. It's really cool. It's called the Passion Translation. And it's based off of like the original originals. And I'm like, what does that mean? And, I, you know, I'm, I'm grossly oversimplifying the conversation. So don't, don't um, take anything from it. I'm like, what does that mean? And they're like, well, the translator says that, you know, this comes from the original Aramaic. And I'm like... So looking into this translation a little bit more, early on, the Hebrew and Greek languages were translated into Aramaic because that was a common spoken language in, throughout like Palestine and Israel. Um, so if you, if you pick up the Passion Translation, do not believe the lies that this Bible is like an older version of the older stuff. It's actually a translation of a translation of a translation, um, which, you know, People can get sneaky with the way they talk about these things. Okay, Aramaic was likely the spoken language of Jesus and his disciples. It was the common language of much of the ancient Near East. So by that we mean, you know, from kind of Israel East to maybe even like uh, modern day Iraq. And that began as early as 600 BC into the first few centuries of uh, the AD period. Okay, 280, something like that. 
Um, in the in the Old Testament, you have parts of Ezra that are written in Aramaic. Ezra four through six, seven parts of chapter seven. Daniel, a big chunk of Daniel, not all of it, but a big chunk of Daniel is written in Aramaic. Um, there are some random verses scattered throughout the Old Testament. Jeremiah uh, chapter ten verse eleven, and it was probably spoken by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And Aramaic influenced the Hebrew language. So as we learn, as scholars have learned more about Aramaic, it gives us some insight into Hebrew, which is kind of helpful. And then you have some things in scripture where you have these like what are called Aramaisms. So they come from uh, Aramaic, but they're, they're either transliterated or kind of recorded in the text in a, in a translation that's a little bit unique. So the Hebrew Bible was translated into Aramaic, and these translations are known as the Targums. So that's what this Passion Translation is based off of. The, the guy who did it is claiming he's, he's got like the more original copy of the Bible. But actually, he's, what he did is he translated the English, he translated the Targums into English. But the Targums are a translation into Aramaic from the Greek and Hebrew, okay? Uh, so the Targums uh, were those original Aramaic translations. And, um, and then when it comes to like the, the New Testament, uh, you have, so, so this also comes in like the word Abba. Abba is actually a, um, it's an Aramaic word. It does mean father, but it's an Aramaic word. It's not a Hebrew word. And then you also, I think when, um, I think when Jesus cries out on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. He's actually speaking in Aramaic, which is why they misunderstand him to think to to believe that he's calling like Elijah, Eli, Eli. What about when the finger writes on the wall? Yeah, many, many tickle and parson or whatever. I'm pretty sure that is Aramaic. Is it still spoken in Uh, that's a good question. I don't think so. I think Arabic would probably have been the language that kind of took it over, but I'm not sure. Does anybody know? What was the question? Is Aramaic still spoken anywhere? It might be in some like you know kind of tribal areas, like um, in the in the Middle East. You have those like what's that Christian tribe? The the Kur Kurds? Is it the Kurds? There's some Christian tribe in like Iran and Iraq that was persecuted quite a bit recently. No, I don't remember. That's a good question. I'm not sure. All right, that's it on Aramaic. Any other questions on that? The finger, the hand might be, I don't know if they spoke a different language, but wasn't it like Babylonian or Persian? Or yeah, but it's, I, I'm not sure what the dates are there, but I, I think it probably, I think they probably were speaking Aramaic, which is why Daniel, much of Daniel is written in Aramaic. Um, but, but I didn't look that up. Paul's, there's also a lot of Hebrew going on too, because Paul was speaking in Hebrew in Acts when he, when he was arrested, and he spoke to the people in Hebrew. So yeah, Paul was probably trilingual. Yeah, he probably knew Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. He did a lot. Of, yeah. He, he um, but and then, and then he worked off the Septuagint, which was all Greek. Right, Greek. So, yep. Yeah. yeah. So that gets complicated as well. So the 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 Hebrew translate. Sorry. The Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek around 200 BC, and that translation is called the Septuagint. So sometimes if you read a quote in the New Testament and you look up its reference in the Old Testament, you see just like a little bit of a difference. And that's because mostly the authors of the New Testament were reading from the Septuagint and quoting from the Septuagint. So you've got like 
a translation that's being recorded and that's where some of those like little nuances come from. Yeah. That might be a little over detailed than most of the people in the room are interested <laughs> in. Arabic became uh, what it was, but it's still spoken. So my guess is that it's still uh, yeah, spoken by certain Jews, okay, by Jews, Christians, and um, Iraq, Syria, and and it still a remains spoken literary and liturgical language. Okay, that's cool. Well, and the Passion of the Christ was all done in Arabic, right? Oh, was it? I didn't realize that. I think they speak Aramaic the whole time. Oh. Interesting. That is cool. I, I didn't realize that. So basically, Bible scholars are the only ones still speaking. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Like Latin. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, so Jesus tries to suppress this story about himself. Um, right? He... Uh, Verse 43, he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. So why do you think Jesus would try and suppress this? This isn't the first time this has happened in Mark. Remember when he, he told the uh, one guy, don't, don't say anything about this. And he's mentioned multiple times miracles that have happened. Right, yeah. So he tells the guy across, the guy we, he sets free from Legion, he actually tells him to go and tell people. Whereas the leper that he heals, uh, he tells that guy. Show himself to the priest. Yeah, and not to tell anybody. Um, I don't know why. Yeah, it's in, it's way back in chapter one, um, verse forty-four. But yeah, he commands him to go to the priest. Yeah. It could be just situational at that moment. That's probably the answer I would go with, right? What did we just see? We saw a crowd pressing in on him so intensely that like when Jesus says, who touched me? His disciples are like, what are you talking about, man? Like there's hundreds of people here and they're all trying to touch you, right? So I, my guess would be that Jesus is trying to kind of tamp his fame down a little bit just so that it doesn't become a, a crazy obstacle to the work that he's doing. Um, 312, he says it too. Does he say it again there? Yeah. yeah. But it usually looks like they usually go and tell. <laughs> yeah, right? So that that's the next piece is... Uh, I mean, what, when, you, when you hear a crazy story or you see a crazy video of something happening on the internet, I mean, you almost can't help yourself, right? And this is like a whole nother level. Like a leper got cleansed. What was the one in chapter three? He was healing demon possessed people. Okay. And I think he might be talking to the, the demons. I don't know, I got a little more. Okay. Whenever an unclear, clean spirit saw him, those possessed fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. So I don't know whether it was... Was speaking to, to the people or the demons. Yeah. A lot of times we put the focus on the miracle rather than the miracle worker. Ooh, that's good. That's a really good point. So maybe at this point Jesus is concerned that people will become ecstatic about what he's doing and not who he is. I like that. 
interesting that the demons knew he wasn't. The priests wouldn't reject him. I know, right? Interesting. And there was a Very long time where there was no miracles, right? So there was a huge period leading up to Christ where miracles weren't done and there was no talking. Yeah, you have this 400 years of silence okay. between the closing of the Old Testament and, and the birth of Christ. Um, you know, amazing stories get shared, though, don't they? Um, yeah. Um, a lot of these people that he did miracles for weren't believers, so these, um, they were actually acting those obedience that, you know, he said, don't tell people, they weren't told because it was just simply an act of disobedience. Sure. Yeah, I, I, I think I would agree with that. I mean, if Jesus says, don't do something and you go and do it, it's an act of disobedience. Um, so it is tragic that they're doing it, and yet, you know, I, I'm, I'm not diminishing the fact that it's an act of disobedience at all, but it's also sort of understandable, right? I mean, how, how does a leper even come back to his neighborhood? <laughs> like, hey man, you look different. Oh, uh, I'm not supposed to talk about that, you know? Like, it still is disobedience, but you can understand how the stories spread, right? Like, hey Jairus, your daughter, yesterday you told me your daughter was like on her deathbed. Now she's in the market with you. Like, what happened? Uh, I'm not supposed to talk about that. Um, the, uh, you know, it's hard to reconcile God's, Jesus' dual nature. You know, nothing's going to happen apart from the right timing yeah. in God's perspective. But from man's perspective, it's, you know, as soon as the, the Pharisees find about the stuff, they start plotting how to kill him, it says. So it's like they're... It's kind of like buying time. The longer you can get away a little bit, yeah. the less time they have to plot. Yeah. But it wasn't going to happen before the appointed time, so it's yeah. makes your head spin. It does make your head spin, right? It is all in God's appointed time, and Jesus has a reason for giving this people, these people this command, and he means it, mm -hmm. and yet they break it, and it serves his purposes, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think we'll probably have to maybe just... Because I'm, I'm hesitant to get into... Uh, Six. But maybe we'll do one thing in six. So let me just conclude this chapter by saying uh, that Mark is now, Mark has been showing Jesus' power in all these different realms, right? Over the demons, in nature, over bodily sickness, over spiritual sin. And now he's also showing Jesus' power over death. Um, and I think if you, if you have the power, like Jesus says, to forgive sins, God alone can do that, right? The people know that. And you have the power to give life, right? To restore life to somebody. You're definitely dealing with God. Those are, those are things that God alone has power over. All right, I, I want to mention one of, the, one of the thing as we get into chapter 6. And this will be just a silly little thing, but we've got a couple of minutes. And this will connect with what I'm preaching on this morning. Picking up in chapter 6, verse 1. Uh, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples, his disciples followed him. Um, duh. <laughs> Obviously, right? This is what a disciple does. A disciple follows their teacher. And the church, I think, has tragically abandoned this idea. Right? Like, what if Mark had said, and his disciples left him and stayed there while Jesus went on his ministry? Would we continue to call them disciples? No, we would say they left him, right? I think the church has tragically abandoned this idea that a Christian is a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. The believer goes where their master goes. He leads them, they follow. 
It should go without saying that wherever Jesus goes, his disciples go. Whatever Jesus does, his disciples are doing, right? So I, I find that an interesting little, and like we, we probably do in the, in the context of the text need to know that, right? Like, especially because we're gonna find out Jesus is going back to his hometown. So he's not making a visit there with like his buddies, you know, his frat bros just like hanging out where they are and he goes back for a little bit. No, no, they go with him on this journey back to his town. But it should be just part and parcel with the definition of Christianity or being a Christian that a Christian is a disciple. A follower of Jesus. Well, Jesus yeah, but this is the dictionary. What do you mean by that? This is where we learn what it means to be a disciple. It's Ye teaching us. Yes. This is what disciples do. They follow. They follow. Yes, that's good. They Thank you. Put that in there. They, that, that's a that's a lesson that wouldn't get taught. Yes. That's exactly right. I am I am saying that based on what the, the rest of the Bible says about discipleship, it's obvious they went with him. But you're right. Mark is trying to explain to people, this is what disciples do. Right? right? Well, just, yeah, I think the, the Great Commission evangelizing people fall short too much. They just think it's telling people about the teacher and, and the Messiah. Yeah. And that's it. But really, the, the Great Commission is to teach them to obey all that Jesus commanded. Yes. That's fulfilling the great Yes. Just some facts about, about Christ. Yep. Absolutely. And I agree with you. I think a lot of times we we present that as uh, not not in its fullness. Right. I heard recently, like, um, even like what good would be for us to know what the Bible says, be biblical, but our life don't, um, like, we don't put into practice what we learn. Yeah. Then it's like. We, we've talked about that. Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed is the man who hears these words of mine and does them. He'll be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The man who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them, he's like a foolish man who builds his house on sand, right? So actually, you're almost maybe in a worse making position if you hear. and You're making you, people fools if you don't tell them yes, to follow God. Yes, to do it, right. All right, we got to wrap up because uh, some of you have to get to a meeting to train. And we don't normally end at 830, but there's a little children's ministry meeting going on. So we're going to wrap up a little bit early today. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that where you go, we would follow you, that we would look to Jesus as wise teacher and Lord and master. And we would desire to be where he is and to do the works that he is doing. And um, we thank you for this picture that we get to see of him uh, in scripture just doing these incredible things to change people's lives and we thank you that you are the god who has power over death you're the giver of life we thank you that you have power to forgive sins we thank you that you have invited us into the kingdom of god and i pray that we would be able to see that kingdom in more of its fullness each and every day that we wouldn't be waiting for death but that we would be uh, living and walking in the kingdom now because that's what you came to to offer us is is new life is um, a joyful relationship with God uh, so we thank you for these things and we we just uh, submit them all to you and pray that by grace you would be at work in our lives in Jesus name amen, amen.